Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo, the crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. The Crime Couch is proudly sponsored by Bank Vic. Peter Lukaitis was an experienced police officer working in uniform and as a detective. The former sergeant is a recipient of the prestigious Victoria Police Valour Award and National Bravery Medal for his bravery at a siege in Kangaroo Flat during 1999. Peter and three colleagues were shot and seriously injured in the incident. The siege remains the single biggest number of police shot at one scene in Victorian police history. Peter was in the job for 39 years, working in both city and country locations. He spent the last 18 years in Castlemaine. I'm sitting with Peter in country Victoria. Welcome to the Crime Couch, Peter. Thanks, Rochelle. It's good to speak to you. Tell me, you became, or you were, a uni student. Why on earth did you become a police member? Um, I was doing a law course and I sort of realised I wasn't a very good student. (laughs) I was working a lot because I didn't want to ask my parents for um, money. But at one stage, I just sort of thought this wasn't going to work. So I looked around for something to do what I was going to do. And if you told me when I was 18 I was going to join the police force, I would have said you were mad. But when I was 21, I decided after talking to a few police people that it was for me. You moved a lot from city policing and then you went back to the country, then you went back to the city and then you went back to the country again. Why did you move around so much? Well, my first move to the country, originally I went to Bright for six months when I was um, just first in the job from Russell Street. And really loved it, loved the social life, loved everything about it. And then later on, in about 1990, I was married at that stage and had two little boys. We sort of thought it was time to maybe go to the country because my wife was from Rochester up north. And I always liked Castlemaine. A job came up there and I thought, oh, look, we'll give it a try. So that's what we did. What do you prefer, country or city policing, and why? Now, that's... a. <laughs> That's pretty hard. I probably in the end prefer country, being me, but they've both got their big points. I mean, city policing can be reasonably exciting and everything happens every day. And country policing can have its down times, but when it, um, when it happens, it really happens. Um, you know, you can, you can get stuff happening up here that is big and you are a long way away from help, so you've got to do it yourself. What's the difference being a, a police member or a cop, say in Melbourne, to being a country cop? What do you think you have to rely on? Do you have to be more lateral thinking? Look, you do. Probably one of the biggest things is the tyranny of distance. That you're, you, if you, if you want backup, backup's a long way away. If you want services, they're a long way away. So you have to probably, you know, do a lot of the stuff yourself. So when I was a detective, I used to do my own crime scene stuff, photos. Uh, you just you basically become more self-reliant and you're a bit more careful with, with what you do in certain situations. You don't make quick decisions. You think about it beforehand because if you're going to get yourself into a situation, you sort of want to know how to get out of it because of the tyranny of distance. You, you know, at Castlemaine, say, we've got uh, backup is probably going to be 
25 minutes away. So um, if you're going to get into something, you want to be able to get out of it. Um, other than that, you're in trouble. One of the things I've noticed when I've dealt with police, particularly in single-person stations, is there's no such thing as privacy. Everyone knows everyone. And even when you're a police member and you're out on the street, you're still a police member. How do you deal with that? Because I know that's one thing I've admired enormously with people in those one-person stations. You're forever a police member, aren't you? Look, that's true. And that's a big thing when you come to the country. Everyone knows you. And they give you an entree card into the country, into the into the policing, the community, and you've just got to prove to them that the entree card was deserved. So they'll welcome you, but they're going to watch and see how what you like. But yeah, you're right. You've you've got to um, act accordingly because you're going to meet some of those people in the local IGA, which is what I I do. So you, if you do meet them, you want to be able to look them in the eye and maybe shake their hand or say hello to their children or introduce your children to them in in a nice way. You know, you you don't want to be avoiding people in a country town. So it's that's the thing to be reasonable to people in all your dealings with them, be fair, and that's all they want. They want reasonableness and fairness. And I think that gets you over the line. But yeah, you, it's it's not a private place unless you live in another town. But I feel for the one man is because um, it's certainly the same here. That's the other thing. Working in the country, are you ever off duty? No, not not really. It's like anywhere. You've got to be careful with your neighbours because they all know who you are. You know, you you can't swear in the street. Not that I'm going to swear in the street, but you've just got to be careful. You've got to be careful with your home life. You've got to be careful with your, your kids. Um, I mean, we was, I was stalked in Castlemaine for a while by someone and even that was tricky for my kids for my wife for me so it opens up a lot of worms but the the main thing is that you are aware of that and you act accordingly you, you just sort of well I know I want to say something to the neighbor about something but I'm just not going to because I don't want to get into an argument and um or if you are going to talk to them you you know you just like be a reasonable person, which is what you should be anyway. One of the things I admire, I remember visiting a member at Kalgoa and that police member, she often used to have to request members of the public to help her hold traffic cones and things like that in accidents. Did you ever have to do those sorts of things? Look, I can't remember exactly that ever happening. Um, but, I mean, we always, in the in the country, I mean, you're always dependent on the community because I was just so to people you're our ears and eyes and if we don't converse with you or get on well with you you can forget it you know but the good thing about country people is that they want to tell you things and all you've got to do is knock on the door say good day get up a rapport and they'll they'll come out with amazing things I, I, I remember um Malden there was an armed robbery at Malden on the chemist shop Anyway, I get there and um, as a detective and I was on my own, but there was a lot of uniform members there. So I said to them, look, can you do a door knock for me while I'm just doing the scene with the victim? So they go off and do a door knock and then one of them comes back and goes, oh, I've been down to the local hardware and the local hardware said, oh, yeah, this woman came in and was trying to make out she was a man. She had a hoodie on and was saying, oh, I need some gaffer tape, thanks. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it's got to be strong gaffer tape. So the bloke thinks, oh, this is a bit strange. And um, so he goes, gets a gaffer tape, sells it to her, and he thinks it's so strange that he goes outside and watches which car she gets into. Not only does he get a description of the car, but takes the ridge over the car. So the member comes back to me and goes, well, mate, we've got the, the rego of this woman that was acting really strangely uh, about buying gaffer tape. And I said, listen, take a bit of this gaffer tape down. Oh, no, I think I said, what colour was the gaffer tape? 
and it was Grey Gaffer Tape. And I thought, yeah, this has got to be it, you know. But that's just sort of a typical thing of country people. Like, in, if it was in the city, you probably wouldn't get that. But you just knock on the doors and country people say, oh, yeah, I saw this... Um cargo pass was actually a bit strange and yeah it was a Ford sedan it had um, roof racks on the top it was yellow and had a pee on it you know and that's the sort of stuff you get from them it was it was it was good yeah in one sense it's true community policing isn't it yes it is yeah I think you have to sort of be everything and one man has to know that they've got to be everything to everyone in a bigger station that I was working at Castle Main with we had uh, 30 members 26 to 30 we were everything to everyone but it was less so than one man is but yes, you had to be a mem- just realise you were a member of the community. Yes, you're a police person, but you're also a member of the community. And um, not that you would turn a blind eye to things, but you would be reasonable about things and not um, sweat the small stuff, you know. Yeah. Bank Vic was founded by police in 1974 to help members get a better deal on banking. Things are better today, but Bank Vic's purpose is the same, to serve the police better than the other banks with great rates and personal service. With a branch inside Victoria Police Centre and mobile lenders visiting stations or available by appointment, they're available where and when it suits you. Bank Vic Get Police, because they've been helping them with their banking for nearly 50 years. To find out more, go to bankvic.com.au slash thecrimecouch. Bankvic is the trading name of Police Financial Services Limited, ABN 33087651661. Peter, how would you describe your career up to that kangaroo flat siege in 1999? Well, when I first joined the police force, I thought, or, you know, after a little while, I thought I want to, one thing I want to do is become a detective and the next thing I want to do is become a sergeant and I, I achieved both of those. Then I, th- you know, I did want to go back to the CIB and I did the um, advanced, what they used to call advanced DDS, they used to call now the Sergeant's Investigation Management course, but I did that and I was going to go back, so I was all intending, to- so it was good up to then. It was, you know, I achieved all those things. I'd done city policing, I'd done country policing and I'd done the general duties and I'd, I'd done the CI and I'd had a lot of, I, I really enjoyed both, but I enjoyed the CI a lot. But then with the, sh- and then I, I thought I'd go on you know do other things but with the shooting things with when, when you have those close death experiences you sort of I don't think I'm alone in this but a lot of people sort of say that they reassess their life a bit and I certainly did that and you look back on you, you think about what's really valuable in your life and what and you look at what you've got in your life rather than looking oh what am I going to get in my life what am I going to do you sort of think gee I'm pretty lucky I've got I've got a wife who I really love and get on well with. I've got four kids that I really love and get on well with and just brings back things. But you sort of, you, you think, you know, I'm pretty lucky bloke. But, uh, sorry. No, that's totally fine, Peter. That makes perfect sense. You appreciate things. Let's go back to that time. When you attended the siege that night, on Friday the 1st of October 1999, did you know what you were actually walking into? Uh, look, I had an emergency briefing, so I knew some things, but I didn't know a lot. That was the main thing I was worried about. I just I did I didn't know a lot, and oh. I knew that um, two policemen had been shot. And it's pretty overwhelming when you get that info. 
sort of think, what the hell? And and you and then and then you think, well, what am I going to do? Because I'm the cavalry coming mm-hmm. along, and people are expecting you to do something. And um, so it was. It, it becomes overwhelming. You know, you, you you get there and you're trying to think clearly, and you're trying to think, what am I going to do now? And I suppose it's where your training comes in. You know, you're talking about cordoning off the scene, um, making sure everyone's uh, positioned properly, and that we're looking at the back and the front and the side and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it was it was pretty tricky because you're getting a lot of questions, you're trying to find out information, and that takes time, and you you don't have a lot of time, and um, so yeah, I'd probably describe it as a bit overwhelming, but you know you've got to do it. What did you know about the offender um, before you actually arrived on scene? Not a lot. Just that he, he had assaulted his dad, and that there was we believed there was a firearm involved. And um, so I was trying to establish from the from the from the ambulance people that were there. Look, is, is there a firearm? In, what sort of firearm has he got? Because they'd been there to the house to pick up the the father. I was trying to get info out of them. What you know? What are we looking at? Are we looking at a twenty two? Are we looking at a three oh eight? Um, you know, different caliber sort of firearms. Um, but by I'd, I'd funnily enough, I had the same rifle as this bloke. So I used to go rabbit shooting. I don't go rabbit shooting anymore, but he had an anxious uh, twenty point twenty two, and I had an anxious point twenty two. But you could sort of tell by the shots that it was a twenty two. But then you know, people still you got to be careful with the twenty two because they're lethal up to you know a mile at fifteen hundred meters or whatever. In fact, I think the guy who gave evidence at the coroner's hearing said that you know any any bullet at any velocity or speed is is lethal. But people sort of forget that you've got you've, the distance you've got to put between those those firearms. So when we cordon off and when we create safety areas, it's got to be big. You know, not just you're not talking one one block of houses. You should be talking two blocks of houses. You should be talking a long, long, far yeah. away. You know, and that was a big lesson learned from that night. Anyway, did you realise that this offender was particularly accurate? And he, you know, in terms of shooting, and he'd actually already shot those two police members, Senior Constable Peter Eames and Senior Detective Craig Miller. They'd been shot and were lying on the ground. Were you aware of that? Yes, I was, basically. I just didn't know where they were, and we were trying to work that out, and then, you know, how how to get them. I didn't know, but Peter, because communicate, but the first thing that happens with um, these things is that people tend to throw away whatever's in their hand. So when you're in a in a situation where your adrenaline goes bang, and something's going bang, um, you will well what I, what I learned on that night is that you'll get rid of whatever's in your hand and you'll just go into sort of you know your your basic human instincts and that's to get away or cover or whatever. So communications were pretty bad. Superintendent Dave Mansell, thank God he was there because he had a, a mobile that he was able to get some info his, his mobile was a little bit broken but he was able to get some information out so I don't know where we would have been without him so I knew that they'd they been shot didn't know where they were it was pretty much darkness everywhere pitch black and we could still hear some shots coming so I was trying to get some info but couldn't get much and then this man walked out from the from where we thought the offender's house was or where the offender was because really then we actually didn't know where the offender was was he had he had he gone over the back of a fence had he gone into another house where 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 had he gone and that's a big concern and uh, but all of a sudden this fellow walks out of the darkness from 
the area where the shooting had been, and we're thinking, hell, who's this? So we actually, Glenn Maillard and I pulled our firearms out on him and we're questioning him to see, you know, well, mate, who are you? And he go, he just then told us straight away, look, I'm, I'm come from where your detective mate has been shot and um, he's in a bad way. My daughter, uh, I think his daughter was a nurse and she was still with him, which was good news. And um, you need to get help to him. You need to get him out because he's not very good. So I said, uh, great, uh, will you come forward? And, you know, we realised, we searched him because you never know, but we just searched him and then realised that he was the real deal. And and then I said, look, you come here behind the police van, which we, was our cover. Although I was telling the members, look, just watch behind you too, because this guy could come around. He could, he, who knows, he could come around the back and pop us off because everyone, everyone tends to look to where they think the threat is and put him behind the van and Alf Kaminsky, the inspector, had just turned up then he'd parked just in front of the ambulances on the on the left and he got out and was sort of came over and was standing there and well I only realised that when I put the fellow behind the van and the ambulances had were starting to had got a call. I didn't know this, but they got a call to say, um, "Oh, can you move back because it's dangerous where you are?" And um, and that's your cover. Yeah, they, they were sort of our cover too. We actually weren't using them for cover, but they were sort of there on our left, so we had at least some other cover. And um, Alf pulls up, gets out of the car, so he's in front of the ambulances to the just to the left of them, and says to me, "Oh, can you come home and give me a briefing, Peter?" Because you know, we knew one another, I knew Alf, he was my yeah. inspector. And for some reason, I just put this bloke behind cover. For yeah. some reason, I just thought, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And I went over and was, you know, about to talk to him and say, oh, look, boss, we've got this, this. And bugger me, he, well, there's another shot and he, um, he goes down like a bag. Peter, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today on The Crime Catch. Thank you, Rochelle. I've enjoyed meeting you and doing it. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Catch.